Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to jump into the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible with you, if you might want to turn there. If you don't, don't worry at all. Um, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Uh, And Exodus is perhaps one of the most dramatic stories, not just in the Bible, but in all of human history. So it's been exciting for us as a church to be going through it over the last few, I was going to say months, but it's more like years and many times to come as well. But what you get in this wonderful story is the tale of these, the people of God, the Israelites, who at the start of the book, they're in captivity. They're oppressed as slaves uh, under Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And it tells a story of how God rescues them through the Exodus story, how God leads them out on this departure from slavery into his promised land, into his purposes. It's a very dramatic, wonderful story. And where we've got to in the story is we're in Exodus chapter 24 today. We're going to read about seven verses from there. And they've just received what's called the, the Book of the Covenant, where God's given him his instructions about how they're to live. And then Moses takes some people Uh, some of his kind of core team, I guess, up the mountain, and then the glory of God falls on them in quite a dramatic way. So we're going to read that bit of the story now, and then we'll pray, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So let's read it. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment which I've written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Where there has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're with us. You're with us here today. We can say boldly and confidently that that same glory that dwelt and rested on that mountain is now in your people, in your church. You're not confined to a mountain or an ark or a a temple, but now your presence dwells amongst your people because of your work, Jesus Christ, that all of us who are believers in Jesus can say, Christ in me, the glory of God in me, in us as a people, your church, your community, God, I'm Sometimes we take that for granted, and this morning, we don't want to do that. We want to come and consider what it means to 
know your glory, what it is to follow you, and what it is to know the wonder of your love and your grace for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's been a bit of a conversation, a debate happening uh, in the city recently about what's called the golden age of Amsterdam, which is, if you've been to the Rijksmuseum or some of the other museums in the, the city, there'll be exhibitions and displays about the golden age of Amsterdam. So they mean the time of Rembrandt and Vermeer, the time of uh, empire and expansion, when Amsterdam was known as the wallet of Europe, the richest city in Europe, where 70% of the world's trade all came through Amsterdam, and everyone here was absolutely loaded. The golden age of the city. And there's been a conversation happening because one of the museums decided that they didn't want to call it the golden age anymore because some aspects of it, some aspects particularly of the, the Dutch empire, and I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm British. Okay, we had an empire which also wasn't very nice. But they're saying perhaps some of that wasn't very golden, that there was some oppression and some negative side to that as well. But the idea of calling something the golden age, it's like a catch-all term. Uh, you say the golden age and it sums up lots of different things that were happening at the time. It's talking about art and wealth and power and prestige. The same, you could, you could uh, maybe the first time you ever fall in love, you might get with your friends over a beer and say, oh, she's just, you know, she's just, she's just wonderful. And uh, you might not find any other words to express it, but what you mean is you're talking about her beauty, her, her character, you know, the way she walks, the clothes she wears, the whole of the impression. She's wonderful. And in the same way, sometimes the Bible uses this phrase, glory. It's a bit difficult to understand or explain quite what this means. But in a way, it's talking about the sum total of all of God's attributes, his character, the wonder of who God is. Perhaps the most glorious thing is that he's all of those wonderful things all at once. It's part of who the glory of who God is. And you can search through the Bible and again and again, the different writers of the different books try and from time to time, they'll try and engage with this concept to try and explain quite what that means. So in Ezekiel chapter one, he tries to explain the glory of God and he talks about windstorms and clouds and fire and gleaming metal and lightning, sparkling bronze, lions, oxen, eagles, wheels, eyes, rushing waters, an expansive crystal, a sapphire throne, one with human appearance, rainbows. He uses all these different terms to try and explain who God is, what he's like, the glory of God. I guess perhaps the best way we could describe it is that God is indescribable. If we try to, to write down, as the writer of Ezekiel does, everything about who God is, you, you'd run out of pages, you'd run out of words. He's, he's indescribable. Not only is God indescribable, but he's, many things about God are a, a bit of a mystery to us. They're unexplainable. The first song we were singing today, we were singing about 
the glory of God the Father, the glory of God the Son, the glory of God the Holy Spirit. Perhaps there might not be any concept in all of Christianity that's as unexplainable as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All fully God, but yet three different persons. You think, how do I get my head around that? Or, Or maybe you might want to try and explain how prayer works. We believe in a God who's sovereign. That means he's in control of all things. Reigning as Lord and King over all of his creation. And yet, somehow, we pray and God listens and answers. We think, how does that work? I don't have an answer to you. I know it does work, but I can't quite explain that. Or you might think, how, how do I hold together God's justice and God's mercy? Or the God who the Psalms declare as he fills the whole earth. His glory fills the whole earth. And yet in a few chapters time in Exodus, we find that, that they build an, an ark of the covenant, like a box, and God dwells there. How can God dwell there and across the whole earth at the same time? There are things of God that are just unexplainable, that we could try and find the words, the pictures to depict it, and we would fail. It's a bit like you see a, a, you know, a glorious, I was gonna say sunrise, but probably most of us aren't up that early, a sunset in the evening, and you might get out your phone and for your Instagram account, try and take a picture of the sun setting. And it looks beautiful, and then on your phone, there's this just tiny little yellow dot thing there, just blueness, or just darkness, it doesn't really work. I remember as, as a child, being really into fighter jets, planes, and going with my dad to an air show, and they're like spitfires, and hurricanes, and, uh, and you know, F-15s flying across the sky, and I'd been given a camera for my birthday, because this was before the time of phones and things like that. So I had this old kind of camera thing. I remember taking pictures of all these planes, and, and I was just so impressed by the noise. You know, when you see a fighter jet fly across the sky, all the, all the car alarms in the car park would start going off because of the vibrations of this plane. And the sight of it was just so dramatic. I remember taking pictures and then in those days, some of you aren't going to know what I'm talking about, but what you have to do is you take the film out of the camera, okay? And then you take it to a man who would then process it and you get your pictures back. I remember a few weeks later getting my pictures back and I'd have these pictures of just blue sky and that was it. <laughs> I'm sure there was a plane here somewhere. You have to flick through because I'd missed it numerous times. And then finally you'd see blue sky with this tiny black dot it doesn't quite capture the experience of that moment. Sometimes when we try and explain the glory of God, as I'm gonna try and do this morning, words fail us. We can't quite do it. But just because God's glory, even God himself is indescribable and unexplainable, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. You know, the vastness of space is an argument for the telescope, not against the telescope. You know, just look at space and think, oh, I just give up, it's just too big. You want to explore, you want to look, you want to discover what's, what's in the sky. It's the same with God. Just because this is a, when you start to 
explore who God is, his character, his love. It captivates you, and you'll live your whole life trying to get to the depths of it, and you'll just skim the surface. But it is such an adventure to go on, to explore what God is really like. But sadly, often, we, we forget our need for a telescope, and we end up using a microscope instead. You know the difference between a microscope and a telescope? Both of them magnify things. But a telescope takes something far away, which is big, but because it's far away, you can't see it and brings it into your view. Whereas a microscope takes something very, very small, which is right in front of you, and expands it to fill your gaze. And often, that's sadly how we live, that we spend our life magnifying small things. We take the little, minute things of life, and we blow them up to fill our horizon. It might be something that you're worried about, you know, an exam, you know, a job interview, something in your life that in the big, and you know if you take a step back, that in the big picture of things, you know, it might be a big deal, but it's not that big a deal. But it can become such a big thing in that moment that it can fill your horizon. Maybe it's a conversation that you've had, or more likely a conversation that you know you need to have. I've got to talk with someone about this, and I don't want to. And you can lie there at night, just going over in your head what you want to say. Or maybe the conversation you had, and replaying it in your mind. All those things you wish you'd said, or the things you wish you hadn't done. And they fill your horizon. They literally keep you awake at night. You can't, you can't get past them. Maybe it's just something that you've done, which, you know, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It just feels like you're carrying this huge weight on your shoulders because a small thing has become vast. You've put a microscope to it and it's filled your gaze. And there's a, a hint of that here in this story because you'll notice there's a funny bit here where it's talking about Moses going up the mountain and the glory of God. And then Moses turns to his to his elders, his leaders, and says, if anyone has a dispute, let him go to Aaron and her, and they'll sort it out. You think, why are we worrying about this? The glory of God is on the mountain. Why is Moses worrying about what happens if they have a little dispute, a little argument, a little disagreement? And I don't want to give you a spoiler, but this is a bit of a hint of what's to come. Because although the glory of God is at hand, the people of God, they get distracted. They do have a few disputes, a few arguments. While Moses is up the mountain with God, they're down there, and although they can see it all happening, they get distracted. We're going to read about that in a few weeks' time. You get later in the book of Exodus, and you find that while Moses has been up with the glory of God, that they've actually made their own idols. They've created their own gods that they're now worshipping instead of the glory in front of them. 
And we do exactly the same. We take sometimes not necessarily even bad things, often good things, but we take lesser glories and we make them greater than the glory that's in front of us. We take good things and we turn them into God things. Things that, they're not bad, but talks in Romans about how we exchange the glory of God. We take what we've seen, what we've been given, and then we go and find our delight somewhere else instead. Perhaps one of the most common ways that we do this is in relationships. Might not seem very obvious to do, but we do this all the time. That a good thing comes into our life, but we make maybe a person, or maybe the relationship as a, as a kind of a whole, but we make them into like a functional savior. In that we think, this person, this is what I need. All my life, I've been incomplete, and they complete me. Without this, it might even be you're not in a relationship, but the idea of having something thinks that's what I, if I don't get that, I won't be happy. And when I get that, everything's going to fall into place. It's like I'm stepping into my promised land. It might be a job, something you've been living your whole life for, you've been studying, you've been preparing, everything has been leading towards this moment when you get into this place and say, that will fulfill me. And you're putting, you're bestowing glory onto something or someone that isn't worthy of it. They're not. Not because there's anything, I'm not saying anything bad about anyone in particular, but they're not, or it isn't. It's not worthy. And what happens is when you put glory onto something that isn't God, you'll crush it. Because it won't be able to meet up to your expectations. Because when you get there, it will let you down. The perfect job, you'll find you might have the right pay, the right job description, but your boss is horrid. You know? Or everything, you tick all the boxes, but then you lose your job. Or just the pressure of it is so overwhelming and demanding that it just consumes your life. And you've put all your hopes and dreams in this thing, and then it lets you down. We can do that even as, as parents. You can do it with, in your marriage. You can say, well, we're having a bit of a tough time, but if we have this baby, that'll fix everything. Because this is what I've been dreaming of my whole life. And you kind of make this child that arrives into your family is the, the solution, the thing that's going to fix everything. And you're putting glory onto a baby, and I've had four of them, so I know what they're like. You know, they're... <laughs> They're wonderful beings, but they're not worthy of glory. They're just not. They smell sometimes. They do. I could tell you other stories, but it won't, it won't bless anybody in the room. 
And it's our baby Thanksgiving today, so I probably should be a bit more thankful. But so often we can live our lives by putting the microscope onto small things, making them big, or we take good things and we make them better than they should be. We bestow, we put a glory on them which they can't contain, they can't hold, and they let us down. Because ultimately we are designed to give glory to things. That's how you're built as a human being, that you've been created to worship. It's in your DNA. It's how you function, to give glory to something. And actually the Bible says there's some wonderful, wonderful benefits, advantages of giving glory to God. That's why we come and sing songs of worship where we sing about his majesty and his wonder and his power. It's because it does something to our souls. It feeds us. It does us good. I'm going to steal four points from the Puritan writer John Owen who talked about the advantages of beholding God's glory. Number one, he says that coming and getting a glimpse of the glory of God, first of all, it will make you ready for heaven. We don't really think about heaven much in the world around us. Even as Christians, it can feel a bit of a disconnected concept. But what we do know about it from the Bible is that when we get there, we're going to do a lot of worshipping God, a lot of beholding his glory. So in learning to do it now, it's kind of getting us ready for eternity. Number one, that, that's number one. Number two, he says virtue or, or a goodness will follow from a real view of Christ's glory in a transforming power to change us into the same image. The Bible talks about us by the Holy Spirit working within us that we change from one degree of glory to the next. But that happens by come and fixing your eyes and your gaze on him. And he comes and works in your life to help you to follow him. That's what we've been discovering as we go through this book of Exodus. That the message of the Bible isn't do good things and then God will bless you. It's God's blessed us already. And now as a response to that, we want to do good things, but only by his grace at work within us. Number three, he says, the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ will give rest, satisfaction, and joy. Coming and fixing your eyes, fixing your heart, your soul, and gazing upon the wonder, the glory of God, will satisfy you, give you rest. We've, so often we live in such a busy city, and, and we think, we know we need rest, and yet our solution to rest is to not do things. I'm busy, so I need to not be busy, and then I'll feel rested. 
And that works to an extent. You know, the Bible talks about taking your Sabbath, about having a break, having a time, a, a rhythm in your life, weekly even, where we stop and we rest. But ultimately, it's not just about stopping, it's about making space for God. That ultimately, you'll find the rest that you so desperately long for, you'll find it in Jesus. The satisfaction that you're striving to get, that you go from place to place, from thing to thing, from relationship to relationship, trying to find satisfaction, you won't find it in those things. You'll find hints of it, glimmers of it, faded glories of it, but the real glory, the real satisfaction is in Jesus. The real joy that you're searching for is found in him. Finally, he says, the sight of the glory of Christ is the spring and cause of our everlasting blessedness. He goes on to say that we cannot comprehend the glory of God, which is what I've been saying. It's indescribable, it's unexplainable. We can't get our head around it. But yet there enters sometimes by the word and the spirit into our hearts such a sense of the uncreated glory of God shining forth in Christ as affects and satisfies our souls with ineffable joy. <laughs> that there's a, it, I can't quite put it into words, but the greatest moments of joy and satisfaction I've found been sometimes some very quiet moments where I'm just suddenly aware of the profound love of God. It might be here on a Sunday morning, you're just singing a song, maybe a song you've sung a hundred times, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit just does something in your heart, and you just get it. You say, oh, he loves me. It just lifts your heart. Sometimes it's a very quiet place. You know, you're all alone in your home or you're going for a walk through the park or you're reading the word of God and just something springs out and it's just like, oh yes, it's true. And a wonderful joy comes when you just catch a glimpse, a taste of the glory of God. And suddenly you feel like Moses on the mountain and you think, oh, what joy, what satisfaction is there? And you might think, well, what do, we, what do we do? Do we need to ascend the mountain like Moses to kind of taste some of this glory? Is that what we need to do? You know, we need to have some kind of epic worship time. We'll fill the stage with as many musical instruments as we can or make a massive noise of the, yes, the glory is here. Is there some kind of pinnacle of activity, pinnacle of following Jesus that you can meet where somehow there you've done all these things so the glory comes? Well, no. The, the best place to understand this passage is perhaps in a story in the New Testament called the Transfiguration, where in Luke chapter 9, um, Jesus 
himself goes up a mountain. And it's kind of a parallel of this story. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, just as the same way as Moses takes Joshua, and they go up this mountain together. And on the top of this mountain, Jesus meets Moses and Elijah. It's very weird. And what they do is they have a conversation. It says in Luke 9, they have a conversation about Jesus' departure. Or a better way to translate that word was they have a conversation about his exodus. Just Moses and Jesus and Elijah having a chat about Jesus' exodus. About how we've been reading in this story about how God has come to rescue this exodus journey where God leads out the people of God, out of their slavery and of their darkness into himself. And we get this wonderful picture of Jesus doing exactly the same, that he's come to lead us, to lead you out of slavery, out of where you've microscoped things, and small, sinful things have become huge in your life. And they've got control of you. But actually, it's not just you need to get a new picture, but you, you can't. It's got a grip on you, and you can't get free of it. You're a slave. But Jesus has come to rescue you. He's come to lead you on an exodus departure journey with him. And that this wonderful, what's called the transfiguration, we discover that Jesus, you might know him as just a good guy, as just a kind of a good moral teacher. You know, there's a few lessons we could learn from the Bible about some nice morals and things. You know, Jesus was just a nice guy. And we learn in this story that you see there's the glory of God is there, that this is God. It says in John 1, the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. The same way as the glory of God comes and dwells on the mountain, Jesus in his glory has come to dwell with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Like the radiance is like a, the outshining. Just the vastness, the scale, the brightness of the glory of God shining into our lives. That's what Jesus is. And in his glory, he's come to lead us on this salvation journey. It says in Romans 3 that all of us have sinned, and we've all fallen short of this glory. That by ourselves, we can't just climb up the mountain. We can't just do enough good things to somehow make God like us. We need a savior, a rescuer to come, to come and lead us, to come and go where we can't go. And ultimately, Jesus... He saves us 
for his glory. That's the great motive of God's redemption journey, is he saves us for his glory. So he can display his power and his might and his wonder and his love to his people. We don't need to ascend the mountain anymore. Because in the next chapter, which we'll look at in a few weeks' time, starts to give some instructions about this tabernacle, this, tent, this temple that they go on to build. And in this holy place, in the very center of it, is a room called the Holy of Holies. And the high priest was only allowed in there once a year. And once a year he'd go in and he'd make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He'd make an atonement for their sin. Once a year he'd go in to do that. And there's a place right on top of the Ark of the Covenant called the Mercy Seat or the atonement cover. It says in Exodus 25 that that's where God's presence dwells. Just there in the very center of the temple, above the mercy seat. <coughs> Which what that's trying to say to us is that where God meets man is not on top of a mountain. It's not some holy special moment. But we meet God in our redemption, in our salvation. We meet God when we see Jesus on the cross dying for us so that we might have life. Because we get into this, even as Christians, we get into this wrong-headed thinking that our experience of God, you know, sometimes we can feel like we're closer to God, and sometimes you can feel like you're further away from God. And we, we feel like that because of what we've done, how we've behaved. We've, I, I feel holy, I've had a good week. Therefore, somehow, God's presence feels kind of thicker. <laughs> feels like I can, I can know more of it. And then the reverse of that is I've had a ter- I've been, you know, I'm not even sure I can come to church today. I'm not even sure I can show my face there because I've been such a fool. I've made so many mistakes. I've got so many regrets. How can I possibly walk into the room and throw my hands in the air and worship God? I can't do that. We feel like God is so far from us. And yet we've, we've, we've misunderstood we don't, we're not understanding the phenomenal, wonderful glory of the grace of God that his presence dwells thickest above the mercy seat. Not above the obedience seat, not above the you've been really good this week seat, but above the mercy seat. I think sometimes some of the most profound experiences of God I've had, some of the most awesome encounters, is where I've just come, just, I guess, at the end of myself, and said, oh God, do you know what? 
I'm a massive idiot. I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. And his grace rushes in. That's what it is to meet with God. That's what it is to know his phenomenal glory. It's in his grace. It's in his love for his people. It's in Jesus who gave himself for you, for me, so that we might have life. And now that we can know that in Christ, each one of us can say as a believer in Jesus, I'm in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, he's in me. So there isn't really a moment when God's glory, his presence is thick or thin. He's with you. He's with us. It's where his presence dwells amongst his people. His glory will go and fill the whole earth through the church, through us, serving him.